blessed. This is the B series. Uh, we've been hearing the word blessed a lot, and uh, we shouldn't be getting tired of this word. Jesus made it clear that he wanted to repeat this word. He wanted to get this word in his audience head. And uh, as we study tonight, I don't want to just skip over this word. We all know what it means, uh, but I want to look into it a little bit. So if someone wants to remind the group, what does the word blessed mean again? What does it mean for those who probably haven't been here? Fortunate. What's the other word, the H word? Happy. Happy. Um, you know, as I heard this word over and over again, I'm, I'm convicted of making this word into something that God didn't intend for it to be. As I looked over it, blessed, happy, happy are the meek, happy are those uh, who mourn. And uh, I want to make two points concerning this word blessed. I want to make these points in order that you don't misinterpret the word either or what Jesus is saying. Um, and the first point is uh, this word solely is an emotion. And you probably know that, but. I know when I get this, when I hear the word happy, um, I get this gooey feeling inside, like, yeah, happy, right? I mean, everyone wants to be happy, and there's nothing wrong with that, Um, but I just got too caught up in an emotion or a feeling. Um, The world is looking for happiness, as we heard two weeks ago, and uh, even last week before then, and I agree to that, but the world's looking for an emotion. They're looking for a feeling. I'm sure of that, and... uh, This blessedness isn't a feeling, but Jesus says it is. Blessed are. Jesus doesn't say here, blessed sometimes are those who mourn, or blessed sometimes are the meek, or blessed sometimes those who are poor in spirit. He says, blessed are. Remember two weeks ago when Andy gave that description of Matt Tex running? Uh, He was running, and uh, I think he was running by house. And he's seen a nice house, right? And he was running, and he was jogging, and he saw the house, and maybe the pain on the house. Uh, got him excited, but all these things went on in his head, the dopamine and whatever you call it, Andy explained it well, and he got this emotional high, right? But then when he came back the next day or the next week, what happened? It was gone, wasn't it? There wasn't no happiness there. Um, this, this blessedness, it, is, it isn't that Matt Tex type happiness. That's what I think of now. Not, speci- not specifically Matt Tex, but that's what I think about. Um, it's more than an emotional high. Think of Christ for a second. Think of Christ. In Isaiah chapter 53, uh, he prophesies that Christ is a man of many, of many what? What does he say? Many sorrows, acquainted with what? Grief. Now, was Christ, was Christ not blessed during those times when he was sorrowful or when he was grieving? No, you bet your buddy was. He was still blessed. Or, <laughs> or what about Job? What about Job? Remember what happened to Job in the first chapter? He lost his family. Was Job still blessed when he, even when he was being physically worn down? He was. He was. I'm positive he didn't have the emotional high then when he lost his family. But he still was blessed. This, blessing, this blessedness doesn't come and go, but Jesus says it is. MacArthur explains it well uh, in his commentary. <laughs> he says the word literally means happy, fortunate. Blissful. Here it speaks of more than a surface emotion. Jesus was describing the divinely bestowed well-being that belongs only to the faithful. It is well with my soul. That's what I think of when I think of the word blessed. I may not be super emotional high all the time or, or have my emotions flowing, but I'm still good. It is well with my soul. So that's the first point. This word solely is an emotion. Second point, it's not the end. 
Remember last two weeks ago, Andy explaining that in the world, happiness is the end of all things. People get good jobs or they go to get schools to make good money, to buy nice things, and in the end, it's going to make them happy. Or, or people go and pursue life goals, and fulfilling those life goals is going to make them happy. In the world, happiness is the end, but not in the kingdom, not here. Uh, these people that Jesus speaks to here, they don't have happiness as the end of all things. They aren't just happy to be happy. They aren't just happy specifically even if they have characteristics because they mourn or because they're poor in spirit. That's not why they're happy. They're happy because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're happy because they shall inherit the earth. They're happy because they shall be comforted. They're happy because they shall see God. That's why they're happy. They're happy because they got Christ. Happiness is in the end. Christ is. So those are the two points I want to make on that word, and I want to keep that in your head. Blessing is not an emotion, and it's not the end. So let's move on. Blessed are the meek. Here it is, the meek. What does this word mean? Uh, how, do you, how do you guys and gals typically hear this word explained? This is a real question, so feel free to answer. <laughs> how do you guys typically hear this word explained? <laughs> Man, that was the one I, I like. Weak, unfortunate. Anything else? Quiet. Hmm. I like that one. <laughs> yeah, the Greek word for meek is praus, uh, which means mild in character or gentle in spirit. We saw the NASB said, blessed are the gentle. Someone who isn't easily provoked or self-assertive but rather someone like I, like I like to put it, cool, calm, and collect in heated situations. Um, I even like Webster's definition of it, surprisingly. Enduring injury with patience and without resents, resentment. Enduring injury with patience and without resentment. I want to flesh this word out by looking at some passages in Scripture, look at some individuals' lives. Also, I want this gentle and, and just gentle in spirit and mild in character. I want this to be a surface definition. Uh, it's what the word means. I don't want you to misinterpret it. It's what the gentle and mild is what the word means. But and we're going to see people who are mild and gentle. Uh, but I want to go deeper. Why are they gentle? Why are they not easily provoked? Um, or why is their power under control? I believe this is going to help you just as it helped me understand the meaning of this word meek. Um, so let's look at Moses's life first. Turn with me to Numbers 12. Good man, Moses. Fourth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Okay, so just for some context, it's nothing much here. Israel just left Mount Sinai, second year, second month out of Egypt. And uh, they're not in the wilderness yet because the, the, the spies sent into Canaan, that event didn't happen. So this is just something that happens uh, just after they left Mount Sinai. Let's read. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. He had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of, me- to the tent of meeting. And the, three of- and the three of them came out. Let's stop there. 
Uh, so Miriam and Aaron, who are they in relation to Moses? Siblings, close kin, whatever you want to call it, brother and sister. Um, and they're approaching him about some woman that he married. They approach him about some Cushite woman. And the, confer- and the conversation soon changed the real issue. Look at, verse, look at verse 2. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? They were questioning his authority. They were questioning his authority. And, they, and it's clear here that they're jealous of Moses or envious. And I asked myself, why Moses? I wouldn't have came up to Moses. Why did they choose to question Moses of all people? The man that the Lord used to perform many miracles before Pharaoh's eyes. I think of how Mo- Moses could have shut these two up with ease. With ease. Moses could have pulled rank on these two easily. He could have said something like this. He didn't say this, but he could have said something like this. Hey, Miriam and Aaron, since you guys want to ask questions, let me ask you a couple questions. And I'll answer yours. I have a, I'm having a hard time remembering, but were you the ones whom God asked to confront Pharaoh in order to release his people from Egypt? And Miriam and Aaron said, well, no, Moses, but okay. And were you guys the one on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights receiving God's law? Well, well, no, Moses. Okay, last question for you two. Have you guys been the one speaking with God face to face, seeing his actual form? Well, you know we have in Moses. Okay, okay. So then why are you guys coming, to me, coming up to me asking such questions? Has the Lord spoken to me? Be gone from me, you imbeciles. <laughs> I mean, and I made that up, but Moses could have said that. Moses could have said that he had the power to say such things. He had the power to put these two in their place. But what did he really say? Look at verse 2, end of verse 2. After they said that, it says, and the Lord heard it, verse 3. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three came out. No wonder it says Moses was the most meekest man. This This is a powerful statement. And you're like, why is he called meek? Well, we see here that Moses didn't even say anything back. He didn't say anything back. He was silent. He was patient. Moses said not a word, but he let the Lord intervene. It said, and the Lord spoke to them. We see the gentle spirit of here, uh, here by Moses, don't we? He could have easily jumped back at the two. But he didn't want to provoke Miriam and Aaron. He didn't want to. But why? Why was Moses so, why didn't he say anything? Well, here's the reason. He found no need. He found no need to say anything back because he knew God would handle the situation. And God did. Look at verse, look at verse 5. And the Lord came down on a, in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting and called to Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward and he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in, right, in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them and, they, and, and he departed. So then what happened was Miriam got a leprous disease and, uh, and uh, something happened to Aaron. I can't, I can't remember what happened to Aaron, but the fact is that the Lord dealt with the situation. The Lord dealt with the situation. Moses found no need to say anything because the Lord handled it. He let the Lord handle it. Let's look at Moses one more time. Tur- flip over a page to number 16. Number 16. 
There's a lot of names in this first verse, so bear with me. Now Korah, the son of Izar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abraham, son of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, son of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with a number of people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all the congregation are holy. Every one of them, the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Stop there. Okay, so here we go again. Here we go again. It seems as if Miriam and Aaron's envy rubbed off on some of the other Israelites. Here you have Korah from the tribe of Levi and some of his buddies approaching Moses. And look at verse 2. It says, And they rose up before Moses with a number of people. Israel, 250 chiefs in the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. And they even brought 250 men with them. I mean, I just think of Moses' love that he had for the people. He always wanted the best for them, for God's people, always constantly in prayer for them, intervening on their behalf when they screwed up. He wasn't perfect, but he always was seeking out their favor. And so many times he's, he's wronged. Look at verse 3. They, they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them. The Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So same situation as the last. In jealousy, in jealousy and envy, they're questioning his authority. They're questioning his authority. Surely Moses is going to have to have something to say now. He was surely going to give it to these men. Let's see what happened. Verse 4. When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. Just stop there. I'll explain later. But he fell on his knees in all humility. He fell on his knees. The Greek word for meek actually could can actually be translated humble. I mean, we see that here and we see that in chapter 12, that Moses was humble about the situation. I mean, surely a situation like this will want to make you stand tall and say something back to the men. But we don't see that in Moses. We see a perfect example, again, of a non-assertive attitude, a gentle spirit. I'm challenged by Moses' life. Um, I really am because we know Moses isn't weak. We know he isn't weak. We get a glimpse of his anger uh, in Exodus 2 or Exodus 3, I believe, where he kills the Egyptian when he's wronging the Hebrew man, or Exodus 32 when Moses comes down from uh, um, Mount Sinai when he got the law from the Lord. And what did he do? He threw the golden calf that they were worshiping, uh, the idol down, and he crushed it and threw it in the river and made them drink it. We know Moses isn't weak. He isn't weak. And I just wanted to clarify that. Moses just never got upset when people offended him, though. But when it came to offending God, he was a he was a fireball. He was a fireball. And does that describe you? I just want to ask that question. How many times do you get upset when people speak badly of you or 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 when they get jealous of you? How do you get upset? Or what about when people revile God's name? At work or in school, do you get upset then? Is your anger kindled then? That's being meek, not caring about when you're wrong, but when God is wrong, it puts an indignation within you. So why? Why the same response by Moses? Well, the same answer. Moses trusted in the Lord's timing rather than his own. Look at the end of verse 4. When Moses heard, he fell on his face, and he said, Korah and all his company, in the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring near to him. 
The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do, do this. Take censers, Korah, and all his company. Put them in the fire and put incense on them before the, before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the holy one. You have gone too far, sons of Korah. So Moses just simply said, hey, the Lord's going to handle this. Just wait. The Lord's going to handle this. He could have jumped back, but he didn't. He trusted in the Lord, and God did. If you want to look at it, 1631. Look at 31. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened his mouth and swallowed them up with their household and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. Korah was punished. He was punished for that. Matthew Henry on meekness says this, The meek are those who quietly submit themselves to God, to his word, to his rod, who follow his directions and comply with his designs. And that definition makes me think of what we studied in recent weeks. Blessed are the poor in spirit, specifically. The two words are very similar. Think about it. The meek are those who quietly submit to God's authority. And they submit to God's authority because they understand that they're spiritually bankrupt. They have nothing to say, nothing to offer. And that God is the one who is rich in spirit and able to control all things. This word is also used of Christ. Let's look at the perfect example. In Zechariah 9, 9, you don't have to turn there with me. It's a hard book to find. And and the prophet was foretelling the triumphal entry of Jesus. Matthew 21 also we see it. And it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The same word here translated, humble is used to describe the Savior. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble, meek, and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, full of a donkey. We know for a fact Christ was perfectly gentle in spirit, perfectly humble. We see, we see the way Moses was mistreated and dealt with the situation, how he was so meek, but it doesn't compare to Christ. Think about it for a sec. He bore the image of man, his creation, and it was mistreated in so many ways. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. I want to look at this for a bit, starting in verse two. For he grew up, for he grew up, for he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of a dry ground. He he had no form of majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was dis, he was despised and rejected by man, a man of many sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every, everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Let's just stop there at 7a. And we read this, Isaiah 53. It really is an amazing text. And I just wanted to look at this because Isaiah prophesies how Christ is going to be treated by man. And he was indeed treated that way. Look at, just look at 3, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by man. He was despised and rejected by man. And look at the end of 3. He was despised and we esteemed him not. 
And even before then, as from one whom men hid their faces, the Savior to whom all glory is due, and yet we esteemed him not. And look at 7a, even 7a. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Oh, I mean, this is absolutely saddening when I was thinking about it. He was spit on. He was slapped. He was beat. Eventually, he was nailed, disrespected to the uttermost. I mean, surely this brings an agony to your heart when you think of your Savior, your Savior this way. But you know, the most interesting thing about studying this was the way he responded, the way Christ responded. Look at, look at 7 again. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Oh, how meek. He was meek. How he was so mild in character, the perfect example. But why? I said I wanted to go deeper. Why? Why was Christ so quiet? Why didn't he open his mouth? Turn to 1 Peter. Peter tells us why. 1 Peter 2. Someone wants to read 1 Peter 2, 23? Yeah. He was reviled. And he suffered. But he continued in all meekness. The verse doesn't say that. It doesn't say all meekness, but it could. It says, but continue entrusting himself to the one who judges ju- justly. We see the humility and meekness here in Christ. He was reviled. He was suffered. I mean, he suffered quietly. But, but why, Peter? Why did, why did he suffer quietly? Why, when he was afflicted, he opened not his mouth? Well, Peter says it. He says he entrusted himself into the one who judges justly. Christ tr- trusted God. Trusting in God's timing, that's being meek. That brings a gentle spirit about us, trusting in God, the one who judges justly, even when we're wrong. I want to look at Christ one last time. Matthew 26 this is a good passage. Matthew 26. Matthew 26, 47. And here you have the situation of Judas finalizing his betrayal of the, of the Lord and handing him over. 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd and swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign. The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said, Friend, do what you came to do. And they came up and laid their hands on Jesus and seized him. Behold, one of these who were with Jesus stretched out his hands and drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So you have another situation here of Jesus being mistreated. Being betrayed by a friend whom he loved. Look at, look at 49. Look at 49. It says, sorry, 48. Now the betrayer had given them a sign. And then the one I will kiss is the, is the man sees him. 
49, and they came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Judas betrayed Christ with a kiss. And we see Jesus' humility. Look at verse 50. Jesus said, Friend, do what you came to do. Friend. That's all I could think about when I read that. He still calls him a friend. I mean, I wouldn't have called him a friend. I probably would have roundhoused the guy. You too. But not Christ. Not Christ. And look, look at verse 50. And, and they came up and laid their hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hands and drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? I want to look at verse 53. Jump down there. 12 legions of angels. Look at, look at the power of Christ. He had power. We know Christ had power. Uh, a legion in the, the legion, a legion of Roman soldiers was 6,000. 6,000 soldiers. So 12 legions, 12 times 6, 72. I am a math major. 72,000 angels Christ could have called down. And we get, we get an account in the Old Testament where one angel kills 185,000 men. I mean, that's power. What Christ could have done to these two. But you want to see power under control? You want to see meekness? Look at, uh, look at verse 54. He says, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? His power was controlled because he was focused on fulfilling the scriptures. He was focused on God's plan. God had predestined him to die, and Christ trusted fully in that plan. Let's stop for a sec. We see meekness. We see what it looks like. Christ controlled his power. uh, Moses controlled his power. But what about the opposite? What does it look like? What's some examples if... uh, if being meek is humble and gentle, what are some opposites? You guys can shout some stuff up. Prideful. Defensive. Assertive. Yep. Anything else? Yeah, prideful, self-assertive, easily angered. You know, I try to think of an example in my own life, and there are many. And I try to, or I try to think of an example in society, and there are many, but there was no need because the opposite right here is in, is, is, uh, in the text. Look at 51. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now we know this to be Peter. We know this to be Peter because of John's gospel. After Christ repeatedly telling him and the, the disciples that he, had to be, that he had to suffer, that he had to die and resurrect Peter decided to take matters into his own hand. He got upset when they seized Christ. He jumped back and uh, took a swipe at a guy's ear. Not cool, you know? He was totally forceful, prideful. He was self-assertive. You know, I'm convicted by the text because so many times that's me. And maybe so many times that's you too. Want to jump back when you're wrong or when someone else is wrong. Want to jump back. Let's continue to see the promises for the meek. So blessed are the meek. We understand what meek is, for they shall inherit. Shall, it's future tense. What comes to mind when you hear the word inherit? Family. Family. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Stuff. Yep. Yeah, there are two big ideas with this word. The first idea is a predecessor. I hope I'm saying that word right. 
or a person who held a position before the current, someone of higher rank. Think of Jacob's predecessor. It was Isaac, and Isaac's predecessor was Abraham. They inherited blessings from their father, family member. And that's a neat point, too, because studying this, you, uh, or thinking of inheritance, you think of uh, always someone who's a, a close family member. That's neat. And the second idea is death. To inherit something, someone usually has to die, right? Typically, would Isaac, have to, would Isaac got the blessing from her father if Abraham wouldn't have died? Or would Jacob got the blessing if Isaac wouldn't have died? And Esau, I mean, and Esau still in his birthright, but if, if Isaac didn't die, he would have never got it. So death. And it was so uh, interesting studying this because in the context, though there were some following Christ at the time, he had disciples. What had to happen for them to become heirs? What had to happen? He had to die. Christ had to die. He had to bear their sins. He had to resurrect for them to be called sons of God. So, prede- so when we think of the word in here, predecessor, someone of higher rank and death. And that, and that points both to Christ. Higher rank, father, and inheritance, death. Christ, Christ were both of those two. And what was their inheritance? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You know, I thought I was going to find some hidden nugget when I was studying this word. Uh, I looked into the meaning of this word. I, I thought I was going to find something more than earth. Then I snapped out of it. And there's no secret here. This word literally means land. The meek will inherit the land. It's our last passage, Revelation 21. Turn there. And someone want to read verses 1 through 7? That's a lot, but just, you got it, yeah. Okay. It doesn't matter, Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And just tune in to verse 7. The mind says, ESV, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Anyone has any different version from ESV or uh, the King James? Maybe NASB. Read verse 7. Yeah. Some versions say uh, inherit. That word her- uh, ESV says heritage. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And there's that same word again, even in Matthew 5. Inherit. God says it again. We will inherit all these things. The meek are those who conquer. 
And what will they inherit? Well, at the beginning, verse 1, Then I saw the new heaven and the new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. They're going to get the new heaven. They're going to get the new earth, the land. What's the end for the meek? For those who are gentle in spirit, for those who are humble and submit to God, the meek shall inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. And so I don't misrepresent the word of God. I, I want to ask you this question. Is the earth of the physical land, is that the point? Is that really the point? I don't believe so. I don't think so. So let me look at, ver, look at uh, verse 3 in, in Revelation 21. And I heard a, and I heard a loud voice from the, from the throne saying, he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be there with them as, as their God. He will wipe away every tear from them, from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Remember what Andy taught, taught two weeks ago? What is heaven without the presence of God? What did he say? Hell. Hell in the sky. And what, what's, what's the new earth without the presence of God? Hell. Hell. Hell on that earth. Understand this, that the meek, they submit to God. They wait on God. And like verse 3 said, they will dwell with him. He will be their God and they will be his people. The one who's meek will dwell with the one true God for eternity. And that's the end. And what does that make them? Blessed. Makes them blessed. Yeah. Let's pray. God, thank you for, uh, just thank you for the reminder in your word, Lord, uh, as we see in Christ and in Moses, Lord, just gentle spirit, a meek spirit, Lord. And Father, that is only from you, Father, your words, Galatians 5, Lord, one of the fruits of the spirit is meekness, Lord, it only comes from you, so we must first have a personal relationship with you, God. Thank you for Christ and his work on his cross, Father. And, and his resurrection, that we may have new life, Lord, and that we are able to live out meekness, Lord, and uh, grow us in it, God. Grow us in trusting in you and your plans, Father. I pray this, Father, for your glory. Thank you for today, Lord. Thank you for the sun. Uh, thank you for breath in our lungs. Thank you for everything, God. We give you praise. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen.